but we're in part three of It's the End of the World. If you're um, visiting for the first time, um, or maybe this is your first time back in a long time, joining us online for the first time, we're in part three um, of this series. And uh, here's, here's where we're going to start today. I want to I ask a question about a question that you've probably asked before. Um, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? If you could ask God one question, believe in God, um, don't believe in God, and let me assure you, just because you believe in God doesn't mean it erases all of your questions for him. But if, if you could ask God one question, what would that question be? One of the things that um, we found or learned over the past few years is that polls aren't as um, uh, accurate at predicting things as they used to be. We've seen this primarily in the presidential election years, uh, but it's happened in other areas as well. So uh, one of the things that pollsters are doing to get around that is they're actually going to Google and looking at Google searches um, because they've discovered that Google is a little bit like a confessional. And in some respects, it's even, it's even more accurate than the poll. So you've seen this if you've used Google before. Google uses suggestive search, right? It'll, it'll finish the sentence for you. It'll finish the question for you based on what all kinds of people are searching for. So if you type in, um, how do I build, Google will populate that with um, a deck or how do I build a canoe, or how do I build um, a website, or how do I build muscle, how do I build my credit, all these other things that, that thousands, if not millions of people have searched for how to build. And so I went to Google this week, and I typed in a few things about this question. Uh, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? And the first one I typed in was, why doesn't God why doesn't God, and here's just some of the top suggestive searches. Uh, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why doesn't God show himself? Why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't God love me? Why doesn't God heal everyone? Maybe you've asked some of those questions before. If you've not asked them out loud, maybe you've thought about them before. Um, you can phrase the question a little bit different. Um, God, why? God, why? And then some of the top suggestive search answers are, God, why is this happening to me? God, why did this happen to me? God, why am I so lonely? God, why am I still single? And then probably the most profound one, God, why me? And, and you start to pick up on this theme, when you, when you go to Google and you see what people are, are typing in and searching and looking for, you start to see this theme of suffering start to come up whenever it comes to people's questions for God. It, it kind of rises to the surface for all kinds of people. Why doesn't God seem to be doing something about this? If, if, if he's really there, if he's really good, why is there so much suffering in this world? Or, or better yet, why is there suffering in your world? Why is there suffering in my world? Ronald Nash, he put it like this, every philosopher believes the most serious challenge to theism, not just Christianity, but, but any belief in God, was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil and suffering. 
It's by far the number one question people wrestle with when it comes to the idea of, of God's activity in this world. And so that's what I wanna tackle today. I wanna tackle it this week and next week today. We're gonna kind of look at the macro level, uh, you know, what happens to evil um, at the end of the world, the, the evil you see in the headlines, um, the evil that you see that you have no control over, uh, the evil that happens to people you have uh, no knowledge of or no relationship with, maybe even the evil that happens to the people that you do know. That's kind of this week, the big 30,000 foot view. Next week, we'll come back and wrap up the series at the micro level, talking about um, the evil that you experience personally or your family experiences personally. And, and, and what do we do um, in between now and the end of the world when it comes to evil? So it's kind of a part one, part two um, this week and next week. So here's our question for today. Uh, why does evil seem to be winning? Why does evil seem to be winning? Again, um, you can look at the macro level and the micro level. Look at the issues our world is facing or the issues you're facing. At the macro level, political instability, um, human trafficking, um, economic injustice, the really big issues that it's really hard to get your arms around, or the micro level. Why am I still single? It sounds like there's a lot of people asking that. Why is my son sick? Why, why did my dad die when I was three? Why, um, you know, why can't I get pregnant? Explain to me why life is going the way it's going. If, if God is good, if God is sovereign, if he's in control, why do I and the people I care about continue to suffer? It's a good question. It's a question that's been asked for thousands of years because life, it just seems to be this epic battle between good and evil. Because, I mean, every movie you've ever seen, every novel you've ever read, there's this struggle, there's this conflict, there's this battle between the good guys and the bad guys. And the ending that we want every time is, and they lived happily ever after. Like we want the good guys to win. We, we've told stories like that for, for thousands of years since the beginning of recorded human history. But that's not always how life actually works, right? That's not, that's not how it seems like life works. Evil many times seems to be winning. Why is that? Why is that? Now, a lot of people assume that the Bible ignores that question, or at the very least provides just simplistic answers. Um, a lot of people don't take the Bible seriously in this area um, because they think it ignores the issue of evil or suffering. And, and here's what I'll say about people who believe that. They've probably never read <laughs> the Bible. They've probably never read it because if you open up the Bible just randomly and then go 10 pages in either direction, you're going to run into the complex, nuanced issue of suffering and evil and, and why life isn't the way we think it should be. I mean, it starts three chapters in and doesn't let up until the last few chapters. I mean, you have to intentionally ignore it to miss it. And, and to be fair, um, some people might get that idea from Christians who say really dumb things about suffering and evil. 
who say really simplistic things about suffering and evil, but that doesn't mean the Bible doesn't address it. It actually addresses it. It actually addresses it in the very centerpiece of the story of the Bible. Okay, so with all of that, uh, the suffering and evil we see in our world, um, the suffering and evil that, that scripture very specifically addresses, with all of that, all of that is true. But there's another side of that coin that is also true because the historical church of which our church is a part of, the historical church still believes in all of that, that Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope in the midst of that. And I know to some of you, you're like, well, Tim, that sounds like a simplistic answer to a complex issue. <laughs> I get that. And, and I know, I, I see why that sounds like something that I just called out, but it's actually not. Um, and, and I hope to kind of build the case for that. Christians don't um, put our hope in anything in this world. We don't put our hope in what does or doesn't happen to us. We don't put our hope in, in something we can control. We actually believe that our hope doesn't come from our ability to figure things out. Our hope is outside of us. Our hope is in Jesus. So I want to show you what that means, especially when it comes to this idea of suffering and evil. So I want to... Um, and I know it's a little bit weird because I'm not in the room with you and you're watching me on a screen and I get that. And those of you who are online, you're already used to that. But um, I, I wanna take you on a little bit of a journey today. Um, I wanna, I'm gonna ask you uh, to, as much as possible, to engage your emotions, to engage your feelings. We're gonna look at a very familiar story because I actually wanna take you back to the day when our hope died. I want to take you back to the last few hours of Jesus's life. And, and, and I know, so many of you know what happens, like there's no spoiler alert here, but I just want you as much as you can to imagine you were there watching it happen that day, okay? You don't know what's going to happen. You only know what's happening right in front of you. And I'm going to do my best to help us with this, but um, as much as you can, I just really want you to tap into your imagination. I want you to tap into your heart, your feelings, your emotions um, as, we, as we go through this. And I'd normally ask you to open up your Bible or your mobile device to the text that we're gonna look through, but I actually just want you to follow along today. I want you to listen to this. I just wanna encourage you, again, to engage your heart, to engage your feelings. I wonder if, if, if we can engage our heart more um, if we just listen to it, then, then just reading it and looking at it as words on a page. So here's, here's what Luke tells us about that day. He says, then the entire council, and this is the Jewish religious leaders, they took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They begin to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king, which actually isn't true. We actually have a record where Jesus uh, pays his taxes and tells other people to, pays his tax, to, to pay their taxes, but this is the lie to get the ball rolling. Um, the same is true today, that, that politics makes strange bedfellows. 
and the religious Jewish leaders are in bed with the Roman governor. It was, it was under the guise of doing what was best for Rome, but in reality, they're doing this because of their own selfish motives. And we're gonna see that here again in a second. But I just want you to imagine, what, like, how would you feel seeing this take place? Because you, you believe You've seen Jesus in action. You believe he's the hope of the world. You believe he's been sent from God. You believe that as as much as you can get your mind around it, you believe he is God. You've seen him heal people. You've seen him feed people. You've seen him raise the dignity of women and children in a culture where where they had very little. And here, here is a group of powerful men lying about him. Like what? Why is Jesus allowing this? Why is God allowing this, right? So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. And Pilate turned to the leading priest and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. I don't know why you guys are so upset here. There's there's nothing here. Then they became insistent but he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea from Galilee to Jerusalem. Another lie. It's another lie. Jesus wasn't causing riots. He was, he was drawing huge crowds, but there's no record of him causing any kind of riots. And, and this is where the motive of the religious leaders starts to become evident. They're jealous They're jealous of Jesus. That's what's going on underneath all of this. It was like, okay, everybody's going to his church now and nobody's coming to ours. Everybody's listening to his podcast now and nobody's listening to ours. That's what's going on. And aren't you so glad that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore today? They're they're jealous of Jesus. And, And again, if you're watching this play out, You believe Jesus is your hope. You believe God is good. You're asking yourself, God, why? Why are you letting this happen? Are are you paying attention? Because this is supposedly your son and they're lying about him. They're, they're, They're taking him through a mock trial all because they're jealous. Are you, are you gonna do something here? The story continues. Oh, is he a Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Pilate said, I know this is the capital, but if you commit the crime in Wabunsee County, you have to be tried in Wabunsee County, not Shawnee County. Okay, this is a jurisdiction thing. So, so Jesus goes to see Herod. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. It's like, I hear you do tricks, Jesus. Like, show me, what what can you do? He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priest and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. So Jesus is silent. The religious leaders are shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. See, Herod 
didn't get what he wanted. Jesus didn't cooperate with Herod's agenda. And so Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate and then in another instance in the category of politics makes strange bedfellows, we read in verse 12, Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. (laughs) It's good to see Jesus is bringing somebody together through all of this. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. And again, if you're there that day, you gotta be thinking, okay, Pilate already said he was innocent. Um, Herod didn't find that Jesus had done anything wrong. He didn't get what he wanted from him, but he didn't find anything wrong. This is the easiest decision in human history. Like the verdict has to be in Jesus's favor. If, If you think Jesus is the hope of the world, that's what you're wanting to hear. That's what you're expecting to hear. What does Pilate say? He says, you brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty. Yes. It's, it's like, thank you, God. Jesus, has, he's, he's innocent, justice has been served, big sigh of relief. And then we read this to, to satisfy the crowd. Pilate is, says he's going to have Jesus flogged and release him because that's what you did 2,000 years ago, I guess. But then a mighty roar rose from the crowd and with one voice they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Who was Barabbas? Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So a man who actually deserved to be in prison, a man who actually deserved to die for his behavior, you want me to release him. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. Pilate's like, he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. This is so mind-blowing. It's, it's like Pilate was actually on God's side here. Pilate is the just judge in this story. The Roman governor is the one who's trying to be just here. But the mob, the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And and Pilate literally washes his hands in front of them to, to say, this man's blood is not on my hands. This man's blood is on your hands. And again, if you're watching this unfold, what do you think in that moment? What do you feel in that moment? Because the verdict went from innocent to guilty in the span of about 20 seconds. It's like, God, are you paying attention here? You watching this? Where are you? You're gonna let this happen to your son? I mean, you show up 
on earth to bring hope and healing and restoration, and this is how it's going to end. How do you feel? What do you think? As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. Not everybody wanted to see this happen. Not everybody agreed with the mob. Jesus had a group of people who loved him. Not everybody wanted to see evil win. Not everybody wants to see this injustice continue. And, and, and Jesus says something really strange to them here in a second. But, but I think... I think we can actually identify with this more than we first believe we can. This is what Jesus says. But Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless. Because when the days get really bad, You don't want to have to deal with your kids as well as yourself. You don't want your kids to have to go through really bad times. Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains, fall on us, and plead with the hills, bury us. See, some of you, You've experienced that kind of suffering. You've experienced that kind of pain in your life. Because you woke up one morning and you wondered, I wonder what it would be like if I didn't wake up today. Because of something that happened to you, because of something you experienced, because of something you did. Like you, you weren't gonna take your own life, but you had the thought. I just wish I was six feet under right now. Jesus is, he's completely realistic about that. He's completely honest in this moment with those women about that. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And again, I thought he was the hope of the world. (laughs) I thought, he, this was God on earth. I thought this was God in a bod. I thought he came to save and restore and bring life, but the bringer of life is hanging on the cross about to die. If you're there, and I know you've heard the story, you know what happens in the days ahead. It's, it's familiar, it's old news. But in this moment, what do you feel? What, what, what emotions are you experiencing? What are you, what are you thinking about the players, the characters in the story? I mean, if you were standing in the crowd that day, whatever side you were on, the grief-stricken women or the jealous religious leaders, it doesn't matter what side you were on, everyone thought God was losing. Everyone thought God was losing. Everyone had the same thought. There's no possible way God could be winning right now. If God is sovereign, if God is good, if God is kind, if Jesus actually is his son, how on earth could he allow this to happen? Everyone thought God was losing. This is verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. 
And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. This was just a game to them. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. Translation, he's not the Messiah. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to death, he's like, dude, we deserve this. We deserve this. We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Some theologians believe this is the first convert to Christianity, a thief on a cross next to Jesus. By this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. We talked about that last Easter and then here, here we get this, this, this little foreshadowing. The light from the sun was gone. The light from the sun was gone. It was literally dark, but it's a foreshadowing of things to come. It was foreshadowing of the removal of common grace. We're gonna talk about this a little bit more in November, but, but let me explain this real, real quick. What, what, is, what is common grace? Jesus taught it like this. That, that the sun shines on the just and the unjust. That it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. That there are people who, who don't believe in God, who are not righteous in God's eyes, but they still get the, the, the benefits of rain. They still get the benefits of, of, of crops. They still get the benefits of good of things they don't deserve. And then there are people who do believe in God that they seem to have nothing but trouble. What, what is that? That's common grace. We live in an era of common grace. But there's coming a day where there will be a separation of good and evil. Jesus taught this over and over and over again. And, and on that day, if you're not on the side of Jesus, if you're not on the side of righteousness, if you're not in Christ, common grace is removed. And, and there will be darkness, but there's no more hope for light in the morning. There, there's sadness, but there's no more hope. There's, there's despair, but there's no more forgiveness. There's confession, but no release. And, and that... That is hell. And, and here in this moment in Luke 24, the light from the sun was gone. It foreshadows that day. It foreshadows that moment when Jesus separates good from evil. Story continues. And suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Put yourself there. 
You're watching all this happen. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What do you want to do? How do you want to respond? What would you have thought in that moment? Like, like you know what everyone around the cross 2,000 years ago thought. They thought God was losing. Yeah, we saw the miracles. We heard his teaching. We were convinced he was the Messiah, but the Messiah is now dead, so he's obviously not the Messiah. God didn't intervene. He allowed his son to be arrested, to be tried, to be lied about, to be flogged, to be crucified. Obviously, he wasn't God. Obviously, he wasn't who we thought he was. Obviously, God isn't paying attention. Obviously, evil is winning. But here's the beautiful, crazy, upside down thing about the cross. In the very moment it looked like God was losing, God was actually winning. Like in the very moment, at the pinnacle of history, it looked like God was losing. But it was actually in that moment that God was winning. The moment when Jesus is dying, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Like this was the mission. This was the whole deal. This was the plan. This was the reason Jesus came. This was the objective all along. Father, forgive them. And and everyone that watched it happen, they thought God was losing, but it was in that moment that God was winning. I, I think about it a little bit like a game of chess. If you, if you play chess, it's like... Um, it's like evil made a move by arresting Jesus. And God counters when Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him. And then evil moved again and the religious leaders lied. And God countered when Pilate sent him to Herod. And then evil moved and the crowd roared for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be killed. And it looked like it was over. It looked like it was check. It was, it was, it, it was, that's all folks. It's time to go home. Nobody's coming back from that moment. Nobody's coming back from that. It looked like evil had checkmate. But it's in that moment when God makes the final move and he's actually like, no, you didn't have checkmate. I got checkmate. It's, it's, it's God has this way. It's actually what you see all throughout history. It's where history is headed. And I think, I think you'll see bits and pieces of it in your life if you look hard enough. It's like every time evil moves, God has a counter move. And then evil tries another way. Evil tries another move and God counters. And every time evil moves, God has this way of turning it for good. But, but the final move for those who are in Christ is not when you breathe your last. The very final move is when God says to evil once and for all, checkmate. It's over. You have no more moves. God says, I'm, I'm gonna use the very thing that evil did to my son to offer salvation to the entire world. It's like, it's like the thing that evil did to try and erase Jesus' name from the pages of history was the very thing that put his name 
in the pages of history. Like the cross is the moment where everybody thought God was losing, but it's the moment that God used to win. And I love, I love how John Piper puts this. It's so powerful. He says, God did not just overcome evil at the cross. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil. (laughs) He made evil commit suicide in doing its worst evil. Evil didn't even know what it was doing. Evil said, I got God. And God said, nope, checkmate. And again, it's, it's, it's in your life, but just, just look at scripture from Abraham to Isaac to, to Jacob to Moses to David to Jesus to Peter to Paul to you to me all the way to the end of history. I mean, you read in Psalms over and over again about the nations raging. When the nations rage, when some politician gets on TV tomorrow, and says something crazy and, 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 and whatever's gonna happen. This is gonna happen if we don't, whatever they threaten to do tomorrow, today, next year, whatever we do to ourselves. Like this isn't fatalism. This, this isn't just throw caution to the wind because none of this matters. No, this is God's sovereignty at work in human history. Because see what, what, what eventually happens? Evil eventually self-destructs. It eventually self-destructs. We see this happen from time to time. It's, it's the guy that you knew 20, 30, 40 years ago, just, just full of arrogance, full of, of all the answers. He, he, he knew how to, to make the deal. He knew how to get the girl. He knew how to do all that stuff. And 20, 30, 40 years later, it comes back to bite him because evil always self-destructs. Yes, sometimes people get away with evil because we live in the era of common grace and it rains on the just and the unjust. But ultimately, finally, evil self-destructs. It commits suicide on itself. So, so here's the question. It's the question you gotta wrestle to the ground. If evil self-destructs, why not decide to be on the side of good and the side of God? If evil did its worst, and couldn't take Jesus out. If it was in that moment that it looked like evil was winning, that it was actually losing, if evil does does indeed self-destruct, why not choose to be on the side of good? And why not choose to be on the side of God? Because come on, we'll talk about this a little more next week. But the evil that's out there in the world, that's easy to point out and condemn, There's bits and pieces of that in your heart. There's bits and pieces of that in my heart. But we can choose. We can decide to be on the side of good and be on the side of God. And so that's my encouragement. This is my encouragement as we wrap this up. Just three things, three quick things that we can do when you see that evil poke its head up in your heart, in your family, at your job, in the news, in our world in general. Three things, three things you do. Number one, remind yourself, evil self-destructs. This will self-destruct. You know where this is going. You know where it's gonna go. This will self-destruct. Number two, 
Separate yourself from evil by choosing good and choosing God. Separate yourself from it. The reason the headlines are the way they are is because the human heart is the way it is. And apart from God, it's a battle you can't win. You, you, you can't win it apart from God. But when you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, when you put him at the center of your life, of your entire being, you are deciding to be on the side of good. You are deciding to be on the side of God, not just because you wanna be on the winning side, but because you've decided that you believe that love wins, that hope wins, that forgiveness wins, that mercy wins. And, and that's what you want your life to be characterized by. Not just to be on the winning team. You separate yourself from evil by choosing good and by choosing God. And then the last one, you heard me say this last week, but I'll say it again for all of us. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And then for some of you, that means trust Jesus with your life. Like you've, you've never done that. You've never made that decision. You've never accepted the invitation that he's offered to you. You should trust Jesus. And for those of us who've already done that, I think we need to remember because of how Jesus' story ends, this is how your story ends. That, that the good guys win God wins, hope wins, Jesus wins. And when you're in him, that's how your story ends. That evil eventually self-destructs. So why not decide? Why not, why not just choose to be on the side of good and to be on the side of God? And we'll come back next week. And we'll wrap up by looking at what does it look like for us as individuals, as couples, as families, even as a church? What does it look like for us to incorporate that into our daily living? What does it look like for us to choose good, to choose God every single day? So I hope, I hope you'll come back and join us next week. But let me pray for you and then we'll get out of here. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us where this epic story is going. And, and I think we all realize if we were there that day at the foot of the cross, none of us would have thought you were winning. But 2,000 years later, we have the, the ability to look back and we can see that you were and you did. And when we look at the news, sometimes uh, when we look at our own lives, there's this temptation to think there's, there's no way God is winning. But you are, and you will. And so would you help us to see this? Would you help this not just to be something that we hear and we agree with, but it's actually something that we live? Would you help us to choose good, to choose you? And, and for some of us, that might be something we need to do for the very first time right here and right now because we haven't decided to trust in you. And God, I pray that even now that, that you would have that conversation with those individual spirits and that they would admit the evil that lurks in their own heart and their need 
for you to forgive them, to restore them, to give them a hope, to give them true life that lasts. Father, for most of us, we just need to be reminded not to fix our eyes on the evil, not to fix our eyes on the suffering in this world or in our own life, but to fix our eyes on you. Because it's, it's, it's you who sends us out into the world to do something about the evil and about the suffering, but it's also you who reminds us <laughs> that you win, that grace wins, that love wins. God, would you remind us of that in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead, in the years ahead, however long we have until you decide to come back. God, would you help us to be the kind of people that live these things out? And I ask it all, I pray it all. We ask this in Jesus' name.